Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. When I was growing up, Palm Sunday was a big thing. We had all the kids have palm branches and make parades around the church. It was quite a spectacle. It's interesting that today we are celebrating Palm Sunday, this coming Sunday, Easter, and yet the sermon today is at the opposite end of Jesus' ministry. It's at the start. So we're going to see bookends in the next two weeks. We're in Mark chapter 1. You can follow along if you like. Mark, as we've discussed before, is the gospel written by Mark almost as a secretary to the Apostle Peter. That's where Mark gets the apostolic input. Peter, as you recall, was the, gossip, was the apostle who was first chosen to bring the gospel to Gentiles. He went to Cornelius the Roman, and it caused a great stir in the church. But then, most of the ministry to the Gentiles was accomplished by Paul, but Peter was the one who started it. It's interesting then that he had Mark write this gospel. It was the first one, and it was written not to Jews, but to Gentiles, to Romans, non-Jews, most of us, right? I'm so grateful that the gospel was opened from Jews to us, aren't you? Yes. Last week, we saw John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness and then baptizing Jesus. His message was repentance and forgiveness of sins. And we, as we talked previously, and we will talk many times this morning, repentance isn't just saying, oh man, I wish I hadn't done that. It's a turning 180 degrees, a full turn in our attitudes and our actions. More on this later. But let me talk a little bit about the fact that this was written to Gentiles, to you and me. We had John the Baptist preaching to Jews out in the wilderness, and what was his message? Repentance. But there is a verse that describes him. It's Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's about preparing. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John was very clear that his purpose was to prepare the way for the Messiah, the Christ who was to come. He knew it, and he was clear about it. We left off. John's preparing. Christ comes. He meets him in the wilderness at the Jordan River where John is baptizing. 
Jesus almost seems like he kind of cuts in front of the line. We don't know that. I'm just speculating. Jesus probably wouldn't do that, right? He'd wait his turn. And John doesn't want to baptize him. But Jesus says, let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John baptizes Jesus, and then we have the three persons of the Godhead there together. Jesus obviously being baptized. We have the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Now, the Holy Spirit was not a dove. It was, he was descending like a, a dove. He was there with Jesus. Okay, well, that's, that's a nice picture. That's good that we can see the, the Trinity there. We will see in, in, a, in a bit why that's significant. So we pick up our, our text in Mark 1, verses 12 through 13. Let me read that for us. It's a very long text. Two verses. The Spirit immediately drove him, meaning Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So we see right off Mark's favorite word, immediately. Bren and Paul have both talked about that word gets used quite often in this gospel. And here it is, immediately. Immediately from what? Immediately from coming up out of the Jordan being baptized. We don't know the exact timing, but it kind of seems to me like he was baptized, he comes up, he was still wet, and the Spirit said, go. Let's look at that for a little bit. Well, one, it was convenient. He was in the Jordan River, which was, at that portion, was part of the wilderness. We know that John was baptizing in the wilderness, so it's reasonable to assume the same place that he was baptizing in the wilderness was where he was baptized Jesus. The Father spoke, he is pleased. The Spirit was present. And it was the Spirit who said, go and be tempted. It was not an angel. It was not a seraphim, not a cherubim. It was God himself one part of the Trinity. So what do we know about the Spirit? Well, the New Testament talks quite a bit about what the Spirit does in our lives. And we don't have time today to go into all of those, but I think we will find that some of those attributes of the Spirit are applicable in this situation. We know that the Spirit is the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. You know you have to be schooled in at least one Greek word each week, otherwise you're not in Sovereign Grace Bible Church, right? So this week's word is parakletos. It means the helper, the paraclete. You don't have to remember that word. 
We see in John chapter 14, the Jesus, that the Spirit is being described as the helper. We know from 1 Corinthians 12 that the spiritual gifts come through the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And John 16 says that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. There are many more things that the Holy Spirit does. But today, I want to look at the source of revelation, wisdom, and power that the Holy Spirit gives because there is revelation and wisdom that the Spirit is using when He drives Jesus into the wilderness. He's giving Him direction. So I'm going to look in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from 17 through 20 to see what the Bible says about the Spirit, revelation of wisdom, and power. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." So you see how this ties in? There's some direction that the Spirit is giving Jesus. It's, it's a wisdom. It's a, it's a knowledge. Go here. So we see that same attribute of the Spirit happening in Mark. Similarly, we can look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 through 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit... For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Interesting. Even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Do you see how the Holy Spirit's being used in forming Jesus, listening to the, the Father? They're all together working with the attributes that they each have. And finally, in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There's power, which we're going to see is needed in the next 40 days. Okay, we have one more. Oh, no, we have a couple more. The Holy Spirit also is a guide to truth. You can see that Jesus is going to be in search of truth, especially as he is tempted by the Satan. We can see that clearly in John 16, 13 through 15, and I'll just flip over there. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you that things that are to come, 
he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is Jesus speaking here. He knows the Spirit. He knows the attributes of the Spirit. And then finally, another attribute of the Spirit is he's involved in our sanctification, being made perfect. This ties in with the temptation of Christ, which we'll see in a little bit. I can't think of a better passage that illustrates the sanctification than Galatians 5, 22 through 25. Some of us here can probably say it from memory, but I'm going to read it so I don't get it wrong. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's really clear how that affects us in our lives, in our sanctification. But you see how the Spirit is working in Christ as He moves Christ out to the temptation? Christ needs these attributes in Him, not that He doesn't already possess them as part of the Godhead, but you see how they're melded together? So, back to our main point. The Spirit drove Jesus, drove Jesus. He's not using an Uber or a Lyft. He's not getting into a Honda. We don't use that word a lot, drove. In my mind, it comes, oh, maybe we have some cowboys driving the cattle down the trail. Cattle don't want to go there, but the cowboys are forcing them to go. Or maybe you have heard of the term slave driver. Well, that's because back in the days, well, there's still slavery going on here, but people would whip slaves to drive them to do work, forcing them. That's not what this Greek word means here. It means immediately. Cause one to depart in haste, to compel, to send out. That's what's going on here. Jesus wasn't digging his heels in, no, I don't want to go. The Spirit's saying, go now. Now's the time. So, where does he go? He goes into the wilderness. So, um, I've prepared a little map, and Cassie's going to put it up for us. For those of you who are watching online, I'm sorry, the little laser pointer doesn't work online so I'll do, do my best here. So, this is the Holy Land in Jesus' time. See, there's, here's Judea, Galilee up here. This hatched area, kind of reddish area, is the wilderness. Over here is the Jordan River. That's in this area is where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. You can see it's all contiguous here. This area here is where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. Do you remember when Abraham and Lot were together? They had too many 
too many flocks and they had to split up and Lot chose the fertile area. Well, that was in here. Thanks, Cassie. That area is no longer fertile. Why? Well, God saw the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah and wiped it off the face of the earth in a violent way. And that area never recovered. It became a wilderness. Well, specifically, what does that mean? When I think of a wilderness in America, I'm a Civil War buff, and I think of the Battle of the Wilderness. Lots of trees, no houses around. Maybe you think of Great Plains. Um, maybe you're from Alaska, and you think of um, barren, icy uh, glaciers. That's not what we really have here. It's more of a, almost a desert-type wilderness. It's very hot in that part of the Holy Land. There was, it was dry. It was desolate. Very little vegetation. The scripture here says there were wild animals. Okay, yeah, we got uh, some scorpions and spiders and maybe snakes and lizards. Okay, that's, that's great. But the word for wild animals that is used is therion. That's your second Greek word for today. Use it in a sentence this week, if you will. It doesn't mean beasts of burden or gentle animals. They were an agricultural society, and they had different words for different types of animals. This word meant dangerous animals. Well, what do you mean by dangerous animals? You know, what do they have over there? Scorpions and snakes, right? Well, at the time of Jesus' life, they had Asiatic lions and Syrian brown bears, all carnivorous and dangerous. Now, they have since been removed from that area, but at that time, they were a very real threat. So Jesus is hanging out there with these dangerous animals, hot, alone. What's he doing there? He is coming to this desolate area, and he's going to be tempted. Now, remember, Jesus, as part of the Godhead, was involved in the creation of the earth, creation of the garden, creation of mankind. But there was a tempter that came in and tempted Eve, and by application, Adam, that destroyed that close fellowship with God, between God and man. Man was kicked out of the garden, and he had to work now by the sweat of his brow would he bring forth produce from the earth. I can't help but think, here Jesus goes into this desolate place as the start of his ministry to reconcile God and man, and here he's confronted with an earth is, that is not the beautiful garden that he created. It's a result of this fall. He's confronted with that fall right in his face, and he's going to spend 40 years there. So let's pick up on 
No, we did 12. We're going to move to And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So, why was he there? Well, the purpose was to be tempted. He was doing battle, single combat, with his arch adversary, Satan. Sounds like something out of a DC comic book, doesn't it? Arch adversary. Well, Satan, that word means adversary. The Satan is the, the accuser, the one who is fighting to bring us down, bring us away from God. And Jesus goes, he's going to be tempted. There's a battle, a spiritual battle going on. Why does Satan care? Jesus needs to be tested and tried because he is going to be the payment for our sins. Now, if Jesus comes down and in all his godly power leads a perfect light and banishes Satan, well, that's great, but that doesn't make him fit to be a sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. He in order for him to be a worthy sacrifice, he has to live a perfect life. If he's tempted and fails, he is no longer living a perfect life. And he needs to do that on his human power. It doesn't count if God is supernaturally protecting him. He needs to come down as a human. Do we get that? It's, it's pretty key. His obedience was demonstrated he made a choice to obey God the Father. Satan wanted him to shortcut. You're hungry. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Hello, stones. Use your divine power to make them bread. Eat. That wasn't God's plan. Throw yourself off this building. You'll be protected. Yeah, there's wild animals here, but you're going to be okay because you have angels to lift you up. No, that's not God's plan. Don't shortcut. Bow down to me and I'll give you the whole world. Shortcut. Not God's plan. Can you imagine what if Jesus had succumbed to that? Where would we be? Not good. A victory is required for him to be fit to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 is going to be a verse that kind of summarizes Mark. Let me read it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to see over and over again that Christ came and is portrayed in this gospel as the suffering servant. Not as the king, not as the mighty conqueror, suffering servant, and he came to give his life as a ransom. In order to pay a ransom for us, he has to have a valid currency, and that valid currency, valid currency is his sinless life. If he blows it here, it's all done, but he doesn't.
One final aspect on this part of the of the the scripture. Mark wrote this for Gentiles. But this actually occurred by a Jew, Jesus, in Palestine. He was told to Peter and the other Jews. So the Jews would clearly have understood the number 40. Now, the Romans, they just go, hey, this is a long time to go without food. But just as a, a side note, what does 40 mean in the Bible? We know that seven has special meanings, three has special meanings. Does 40 have any special meanings? Well, Jewish scholars say that 40 is the number for testing, trial, and probation. Isn't that interesting? Jesus was going in his human form going through a kind of probation, a testing, a trial. Well, how do we know this? Well, think back to Noah. How long did it rain? 40 days and 40 nights, the number 40. Moses, he had three sets of 40 in his life, where he was raised in Pharaoh's court, then he was sent out for 40 years in the wilderness of Midian, where he was shaped in order to be the leader that God wanted him to be, and then 40 years of severe testing as he dealt with the stubborn-necked people through the wilderness of Sinai. Jonah, remember that reluctant prophet? He preached to Nineveh 40 days. We see it again in Ezekiel, Elijah. But the one you'll probably remember most, between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, 40 days. So the Jews would have been very clear on that. Oh, this is what he's doing. Testing, trial, probation. Let's move on to our next section, verses 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we remember John the Baptist. We just talked about him last week. He was arrested by Herod Antipas for marrying Philip, which, who was not, he didn't marry Philip. He married Philip's wife, Heroditus, and he was eventually executed. But he was, now let me just try that again. Herod was called out by John because Herod married Heroditus, who had been the wife of his brother Philip. John the Baptist called out Herod, and Herod didn't like it. He imprisoned John, and eventually John was executed. But not yet. He spent a little bit of time in prison, and that's where we are when Jesus starts this ministry. So, John had just been arrested. So, the forerunner, the one preparing the way, his ministry is done. He's not preparing the way anymore. He's in prison. Is that okay? 
Well, probably for John, it's not especially nice. But on a spiritual scale, John's not needed anymore because he's preparing the way for the Christ, and the Christ is here. He has come. So his time is done. We're going to see God's timing in a little bit. So Jesus came to Galilee. Once more, we're going to look at the map just for a bit. Before we were focusing on the, the wilderness, which is right next to this part of Judea where you have Jerusalem, this was the spiritual, educational, political center of the region. All the hot shots and bigwigs, that's where they were. You go up, and this kind of orange area is Samaria. The Jews didn't like Samaria. Samaria was a bunch of half-breeds from the Assyrian conquest almost a millennia previous to this. Not only that, the bigger deal is that Samaria, the Samaritans, didn't want to worship in Jerusalem where God said they needed to go too far away, and uh, you guys might not treat us nicely. So they put up their own altar. So the Jews down here and up here in Galilee said, no, that's wrong. You guys are blasphemers. So much so that if you were a Jew and you wanted to go from Galilee to Judea or the other way around, you would go cross the Jordan outside and cross back in because they didn't want to set foot in this land of blasphemers. One more part here. This was all part of the, the same Roman province, but up here is Galilee, and we see a lot of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Galilee is the place very unlike Jerusalem and Judea. It's not where all the smart guys go to school. It's not the intellectual capital. It's not the spiritual capital. It's not the political capital. It's the backward place. It's where, okay, yeah, yeah, they're, they're still Jews, but, uh, you know, that's not where you want to send your kids to college, right? Thanks, Cassie. So, we have Jesus starting his ministry where? In Galilee. Well, that's not where I chose. I chose to go to Jerusalem. But God is wise, and He knows what He's doing. So Jesus came to Galilee. And there's a lot more Gentile influence up there. In fact, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Let me read another passage from Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 2. But there will be no gloom for who who was in, for her who was in anguish. Into the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light shone. This is a promise 
This is a prophecy that up in this little corner, Jesus is going to come and His light is going to be not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for all the nations, for you, for me. And He demonstrates it by His actions. When my wife and I have had rough times and I'd apologize, she'd accept my apology but there, and she'd forgive me, but there was always, okay, yeah, but those are words. Let me see by your actions. Let me see if you really mean it. Jesus showed by his actions that Galilee, the nations, not just Jews, were important. So, what is Jesus' message here? Well, we know John's message was repent and turn, prepare for the Messiah. Jesus' message is he's preaching the good news. So, what good news? Well, most of us would say, oh, that's the good news that Christ came, suffered, and died and was resurrected for our sins. But you know what? He hadn't suffered and died and was resurrected yet. We get context from the Scripture. He was saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of God. Ooh, not salvation through my death and resurrection. The kingdom of God. Why would Mark say that? Because you and I both know that's the whole purpose, right? Well, first of all, Mark is talking to Gentiles. Other Gospels say kingdom of heaven. Well, the Jews have a very clear understanding what, the king, what heaven is. If you talk to the Romans about heaven, they're thinking, well, uh, Jupiter and Venus and all these other Greek gods, that's where they live. Mount Olympus, right? No, that's not the picture that Mark wanted to give. So he used different terminology to explain the same things, things that they would understand. Kingdom of God, kingdom, ruler with his people. God is ruling. The time for his ruling is coming now. Doesn't say Jesus died for his sins. Not yet. That's coming in a little bit. But the kingdom of God, the Messiah is here. It's at hand. It's now fulfilled. Again, God's timing. God's kingdom, God's rule. That means there's interaction. The barrier between God and man is broken down. Remember, God had a relationship with Adam. They blew it. Expelled. Let's try again. They start going corrupt. God says, all right, I'm going to get rid of all the evil people. I'm going to start again with Noah. That didn't take long before that went south. Then he said, all right, I am going to choose a people, the people of Israel, sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a sovereign choice. Well, that kind of left the rest of mankind, you and me, 
out in the cold. Not really, but it sure seems that way. Until Christ comes to reconcile all of that. He is coming to restore that kingdom. The kingdom is, has a king, a ruler, which is God interacting with those that he's ruling. Now, let's talk about what the Jews were expecting. They wanted political independence. They didn't want to be ruled by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans. They want, because that would give them civil peace. No taxation. They could do what they wanted to. They could worship how they wanted to. They could prosper. Personal prosperity. They were looking for a military champion to restore that, that independence so they could have personal prosperity. That military champion, they wanted him to conquer the barriers to their to their prosperity. Yes, restoration with God, that's good. Instead, Jesus conquers the barriers between all humanity and God. That sin, he conquers the sin. So what is God? Well, he's not a Democrat, not a Republican. He is a benevolent dictator. God governs his people, actually all people, whether all people choose to acknowledge him or not. He governs all people. So the Jews wanted political independence. God governs in wisdom. The Jews wanted civil peace. God provides inner peace. The Jews wanted personal prosperity. We have a God who knows and meets our deepest needs. So Jesus' message, repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel, good news. We are to repent. Metanoia, the Greek word meaning to change one's mind and agree. Agree about what? That our sins are abhorrent. Again, it's not enough to say, hey, I did this thing or thought this thing and that was wrong. And it's not even enough to say, I did this or thought this, and I'm going to stop. Repent means to agree with God that that was a bad thing. It was abhorrent. Not just against some rule that we don't agree with. That we violated God and it's, it's bad, it's abhorrent. We have to have a change in our attitude. So, again, John was saying, Repent. Jesus says, repent and believe. Ooh, there's a different aspect. Jesus is giving us a call to faith. We need to believe. Believe what? Well, let's look at the context. That God will reign in His kingdom. His kingdom is being restored. His kingdom is at hand. We will no longer be separated. Man was on his own. What a mess we've made out of that. It's a call to the listeners, the people there that he started preaching to in Galilee. And a call to the listeners that 
Mark wrote this to, and a call to us here as we read it. One, turn. Two, have faith. Have faith in what? The gospel of the good news of God's kingdom. We're no longer separated. John said, repent and look for the coming, which is soon. Jesus said, I am here. Repent. Believe salvation from the separation is here now. Now, our gospel is expanded because we have the benefit of history. We can look back and see that Jesus lived, bled, died, and was resurrected, which we will celebrate next week. We have a post-resurrection viewpoint. But it's essentially the same. We just have an expanded understanding. The Messiah, the promised one, has come. He lived. He was tempted. He prevailed. Praise Him. He died. He prevailed again. We have the same call. Repent. Turn. Agree with God that our sins are evil. And believe. Have faith. So, in clothing, closing, the Holy Spirit impelled Jesus into the lonely, sparse, dangerous wilderness to be tempted to do battle with his adversary. The prize for this outcome? The adequacy of his payment to redeem our souls. The imperative is to listen and obey the Holy Spirit. Jesus starts his ministry with a call to repentance. Are you getting this repentance theme that we're seeing a lot of? Turn and agree and to have faith. Stated another way, I want to reread the passage that William read for us. Thank you, William, by the way, for reading that. In 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We are called to be holy because God is holy. 
This is impossible without the Holy Spirit. I've tried many times to be holy throughout my whole life. I fail. I can't do it by myself. I need God's Holy Spirit working in me. Jesus ransomed us by His death. His ransom was sufficient. Many things went into that sufficiency. One of them was due to His success in this temptation that He just went through. Our response can be nothing short of a similar repentance and adoption as Peter calls us. Adoption of a practice of obedience made possible by the Holy Spirit guiding and working in us as we are perfected. We need a change of attitude and accompanying action conforming to God's direction powered by the Holy Spirit in our lives. As many of you know, I work in recovery. One of the guys that I work with, we'll call him Sam, was sharing with me one time, and he said, you know, when I was 18, I was in the church, but I looked out there and I said, you know, God, this looks like one big party. I'll see you in about five years. He wanted to ignore God's guidance and direction just for a little bit of time, just for five years, and I'll be back. You're a God of forgiveness and love. Well, here he was, 45 years later, struggling with issues, not chemical dependence that we think of mostly, but other issues that affected him, his family, the people around him. He had made a short-term decision to put God on the shelf. Don't put God on the shelf. Not for five years, not for five months, five weeks, five days, or five minutes. He needs to be here working in your life now. We can't afford it. The cost is too great. Yes, there's forgiveness, but there's consequences to our sin. This guy messed up his life. Sam messed up his life because he didn't follow God, because he saw green pastures. Oh, I want to be partying. It was a mistake. Don't be like Sam. Join me in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your kingdom, for your Holy Spirit coming to indwell and even drive us as Jesus did to repentance and obedience and give us power even as we looked in your word today. As we experience your kingdom, be the Lord of each of our hearts. You ruling your creation, your people, in your character and power. In your name we pray. Amen.